O Almighty God, who alone canst order the unruly wills and affections of sinful men, grant unto thy people that they may love the thing which thou commandest and desire that which thou dost promise, that so among the sundry and manifold changes of the world our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found through Jesus Christ our Lord, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. So, uh, the history, not just the history of the Advent, but hopefully I get into the vision, uh, especially now, but things that have kind of been happening all along. And I have this quote up there from Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. Um, and uh, can you all see it? Maybe we hit this light here. Um, what's past is, yeah, 452. Uh, it was on, it was on, it was on Google. Um, what's past is prologue. You know, it's easy to to get. Uh, it's it's hard to do history. <laughs> it's easy when you're doing history to get caught up in names and dates. You know, sort of trivial facts that, like, I could sort of just sort of try to pump into your minds, and that but that that will kind of fail. Um, and so I'm I'm trying to think about what are some things that have happened in the history of the Advent that. Uh, are interesting and perhaps relevant to today and what our current vision of the church is. So I'm skipping over tons of things. If you're interested in <clears throat> a lot of details about the history of the Advent, if you're into that kind of stuff, there's some really good material out there. Um, uh, first of all, uh, about a month or so ago, Alice Bauscher and I, she's kind of our resident historiographer, uh, we did a two-part series on the history of the Advent, which got more into sort of uh, details of people and dates. And she really based it around past rectors and then deans of the church. I'm not going to do that so much. I'm going to do more around ideas, topical. Um, so you can go online to our audio recordings and listen to that two-part series if you want to get more history of the church. There are also several books that are all for sale, not all, but most for sale. In our bookstore, Witnesses to the Light is a great coffee table book, which really is about our stained glass uh, in the church, though it's about much more and has a lot of history in there by John Harper, former uh, vice dean and interim dean. The oldest sort of actual history book, which we don't sell, this is from the 50s, I think, you can get online or in the Birmingham Public Library, is History of the Church of the Advent, and that is by, uh, what's her name, Mitty... Uh, Owen McDavid, and really this other woman later on, Rebecca uh, Rogers, come on in, she wrote two books, which really lifts from that earlier one. Uh, the first one is The Strength of Her Towers, which is more of a history of the Advent, and the second one, How Firm a Foundation, has a mixture of the history of the Advent and some diocesan history, both for sale in the bookstore, and then uh, we've had a, a slew of cookbooks in our past, and the most recent one is the uh, Lenten Lunches cookbook, and I'll mention that in a moment, and that gives a, a little bit of a prologue history on our Lenten Lunches, which is our biggest, probably, program in the church. Um, but just getting going back to the beginning, you know, Birmingham's a relatively new city comparatively to even where I'm from, you know, San Francisco, uh, 1849. You know, Birmingham's actually younger than, than than my hometown of California, where it's a lot of sort of 
in the suburbs, a lot of kind of big box stores and things like that. So thinking about that, that's kind of interesting, especially in the South. The town, of, as you know, was built around um, the, 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 the minerals and the soil, and this property developer was called Eliton Land Company, and they were really the ones who sort of planned the city, and it was a planned city. And I was actually at the archives at the Birmingham Public Library a block away the other day, and I asked the archivist, what's your prized possession? And he pulled this out. This is the oldest sort of plan of the city, and these were just lots of people's uh, farmland. I mean, this was wilderness. It was sort of, they, 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 they built right where we are now. These were, this was farm and forest and trees not too long ago. And so this is really in the earliest days what, where we're standing kind of looked like. It's kind of hard to imagine with all the um, the big buildings, uh, especially the, the banking industry, um, the governmental buildings, a lot of other commerce around us. But in fact, this would have been the residential neighborhood of the city. Yeah. So 1871 was the year that the city was incorporated, and the church itself was founded not too long after in 1872. Um, and uh, so where we are now, this was the residential neighborhood, and the commerce would have been more, Main Street was really like Morris Avenue, because the railroad was there, and so it was easier to take the supplies off right off the trains and put them into the stores, uh, which were just like a block away. Uh, so the commerce would have been more on that, a few blocks away, that end of town, and this was residential. So around here were houses. Um, and so you can see this is an early map from 1877. This is a, five churches were given quarter block lots. Four of the five are still here. Us, St. Paul's, the Catholic Church, First Presbyterian, First United Methodist, and First Baptist, which is now on Lakeshore and Homewood, was originally a couple blocks that way, is now a region's parking lot. Um, so these churches were given quarter block lots because these were all houses. The words you can't see are people's names. Uh, and they had this plan for what's now Lynn Park to be Capitol Park because there was the imagination of the, the original sort of dozen or so guys from Elitton Land Company, they wanted this to be the capital of Alabama. I mean, they had big plans for the city. And we were given the, the choicest piece of property in terms of a church because 20th Street was kind of the main drag down toward the railroad and Morris Avenue. Um, but around us were, uh, were, uh, were homes. And the, uh, the earliest uh, minister in charge, I don't even think you could call him a rector, he was a deacon in charge, was a man named Philip Fitz, who was sent to uh, pastor to several churches. Um, Eliton was... Uh, Where's West? Was west of us on the other side of 65, and there was a church there. And so he was the pastor there, and also uh, attempting to found this church here, and also minister to a church in Irondale. Um, and the first church they built in 1872 looked like this. And they called it the up and down church because the, the boards were vertical like this. And that uh, structure which burned down in the 1890s was about uh, the, the front door would have been right here. over there about 150 200 feet 
uh, at the southern end of Clingman Commons, kind of around where the chapter room and the restrooms are. Best guess by looking at the uh, the maps. Um, and so uh, that burned down, unfortunately, I think on Thanksgiving Day uh, in the 1890s. And a couple things, though, survived. The cross that's still at our um, Reredos and the nave was in that building and survived. And so we still have it. And also the baptismal font, which is in the uh, baptistry. If you've never been back in the baptistry, that's the, the sort of back corner if you turn around and look toward the exit of the church on the right side, it looks like a little tiny chapel. Um, so the baptismal font and the cross are some remnants we have from that original structure. And during those years from uh, you know, 1872 to 1882, people like Philip Fitz weren't here very long. That, that original deacon who was quite young, six months to a year, two years, the series of ministers coming through and um there a lot of uh sort of dependency probably on lay leadership you'd have to imagine for this church to really grow uh and the first uh and that might have some dna and why the advent has had sort of a tradition over the years of of real strong lay leadership because from its infancy the church really had to depend on uh, lay leadership to survive because these ministers who were coming through, you have to imagine, were probably more like chaplains. You know, what I mean, they probably visited the sick and celebrated communion and preached, but they probably weren't able to have much of a foothold to do anything uh, leadership wise. The first real uh, rector who was here for a while was this guy named uh, Thomas Jefferson Beard, which I love. You can always remember his name because he has this prominent uh, hipster beard. Um, and uh, he came from Demopolis. I was down preaching at the church in Demopolis, and I saw his uh, photo up on their wall of rectors, and I was like, oh, he was here before he went to the, <laughs> the same exact picture. Um, and But he was here for 14 years, which then you see establishing a, another tradition that's been, so first of all, that, that period of 10 years were sort of, you know, there was no stability with uh, the, uh, the the clerical leadership, so there had to be lay leadership. But in addition to that, another thing we've had a tradition of is uh, uh, rectors and deans who've been here for quite a long time. And Beard was really the first guy uh, to do that for 14 years. And uh, was here during, you know, the fire, um, some really hard economic times. Um, so helping the church to get through that. Um, I just was going to point out so that, that when the church burned down it was right here and we're like right here where we're standing and then they um, they laid the foundation uh, for the new church and so this is an old uh, uh, map here um, but anyway that's kind of trivia when they were building that the new church that we knew now have, the original design was for it to look like this, which was a much more kind of ornate Gothic structure, if you can make out that line drawing. Um, it says New Church of the Advent there at the bottom. Somewhat vaguely resembles what we have now, uh, but because of the, the economic situation in the 1890s, that probably explains why it ended up looking like this instead, which... I don't know about you, but I actually prefer the, the way it looks now. Maybe that's just because of what I'm used to. Uh, and there's an, uh, an old photograph probably from 
the 1910s, uh, teens, uh, you can see the old cars parked there and looks quite similar uh, to what it looks like now except for the, the trees are more mature. And around that time from that exterior photo you just saw, the interior of the church uh, would have looked like this and you could see it's much simpler and yet there are some things that are in there that we still have, the same pews, um, these uh, windows here, but it's lacking that large uh, Last Supper uh, painting. Uh, the, the organ pipes here are no longer, I mean, are, are now and also here. The pulpit's different. There's a large sounding board because they didn't have uh, amplification like we do now. A lot of old churches had these big sounding boards to pro help project the preacher's voice. And so you could see that from that old early 20th century photograph compared to what it looks like now, different and yet still quite the same. So that's some early history, just kind of whirlwind getting through it. Like I said, I, uh, if you really want to sink your teeth into the kind of 30 years that I just went through, uh, I really commend those books to you. But what about some themes in terms of the, the not only the history, but the, the vision of the Advent? Um, one is, you know, if you go around and you ask people about the Advent, what, what do you know? One thing people will say, if you ask people from the inside, but also on the outside, one people will talk about is it's preaching and teaching, gospel proclamation. And you could see early signs of that with the, the Lenten preaching series has been around uh, since 1908. That's incredible to, to think about that we've been doing that for over 100 years now. Um, and while I was at the archives the other day, um, I thought I'd share this with you. Um, Charles Klingman, who was the rector in 1936 to 1938 and then became the Bishop of Alabama, they had this box full of his old personal calendars. And this is his calendar from March 1938. And these are the, the, uh, the weekdays here. And you can see these blocks. Those are the preachers that are going to be in town uh, those weeks. And as now we have it, people come in for uh, one to maybe three days, usually no more than that. Sometimes we get someone here for a full week. We had Mike Hill was here for a full week last year, but that's kind of rare. But back then it was somebody was in town for a full week preaching. And I think they were still doing that uh, until fairly, fairly recently. We've changed to, to sort of... Um, have uh, a, a larger um, base of preachers, but uh, preaching uh, and uh, preaching of the gospel important. Um, and and the Lenten preaching series is I think is the one thing that you can really point to in the history of the Advent. And this is a really unique ministry. I mean, show me another church that brings uh, people in five days a week during the whole season of Lent. Often, uh, even to this day, churches will have maybe like one midweek service on a Wednesday night or something. So when I talk to people about the Lenten preaching series, that's what they think. And they go, oh, wait a minute, they're here every single day? That's crazy. And you build a restaurant around that, uh, which is another theme I'll get to, is that it's not just the preaching, um, but the, the Lenten lunches, uh, as we know them now, uh, got their start in 1980, but before that, even from the earliest days, there was a tradition of lunches attached to Lent. Uh, it just it took different permutations over the years, 
but for the last 36 years we've been doing it the way you, you now know if you came uh, during the five weeks a couple months ago. Um, and one thing about the Lenten lunches that I think is important that we see even to this day is the role of women in the church here at the Advent. Uh, even from the late 1800s, uh, early 20th century, women were really actively involved with things like fundraising and really um, innovative about how they did it. A couple stories that I like is um, uh, the pews that we have in the nave. You can thank the women of the church for raising money uh, to, to have those built by holding a strawberry festival. Uh, another one that uh, I think is really funny is um, a fundraiser uh, that was called a Kermis, which is like this dance festival. Uh, and uh, the, 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 the women of the Advent put this together, and the next Sunday, preachers at other churches were preaching about it from their pulpits, denouncing what the Church of the Advent was doing by having this risque affair with uh, international dancers coming in. Um, but that was a, another big fundraiser. Um, uh, another one is the women of the church knew that the church needed a certain amount of money for something. And um, the men said, well, if you raise uh, a certain amount, we'll, we'll match it. But what they didn't know is that the women already had the money uh, on hand. And so, I mean, we, we really do have the women of the church to thank for a lot of the things that are around here. And they still to this day, the ECW, the Episcopal Church Women, and guilds really do run the show with the Lenten lunches. Um, and there's the, the cookbook that I showed you, and we have a history of several of cook, the, these cookbooks um, taking the recipes from Lent and uh, paring them down from the mass quantities that we create to give you something that you can make at home. But one of the things that I think is cool about our most current one is this uh, window here, which if, you, if you're walking through what we call the Bartleben Passageway, between Klingman and the nave. If you see the other hallway that goes back to where the, the sacristy and the vesting room are, there are a couple of, of windows by the sacristy and they're uh, exclusively of, of women from church history because historically the, the women's guilds have, have run, the, the, the sacristy is a women's guild historically. Now there are some men involved. Um, uh, but there you go. So the role of preaching in the church and the role of women in the church as being uh, really important. And lay leadership, remember. Uh, lay leadership, rectors with long tenures after a while, bringing some stability that's helpful for that lay leadership, actually. Uh, the role of women, the role of preaching. Um, and then I want to talk to you about uh, some more recent history, um, uh, just to, to, to bring things kind of to a close. I'm skipping over a lot of the, the 20th century rectors, but I want to talk about a couple of things that happened with more recent rectors and deans that, that I kind of like because uh, of a few different themes. And one is uh, our place in the city of Birmingham. Remember I talked about how we were founded along with the city. Uh, and I think that's really important that we maintain a, um, a sort of a, an active involvement and influence on the city and the people and constantly trying to reach new people for the gospel and not this be, a, you know, a fortress that we come into. And it can be very alienating for a lot of people. They see this building and they think, I don't want to go in there, you know. Uh, so we have to think about what ways do we 
bring those barriers down uh, to reach out to people. And this is John Turner, who was a rector for a very long time, from the 1930s to the 1960s. And one cool thing that we still have around to this day that he brought is this statue. Have you all seen it out there on 20th Street? It's an easy thing to, to perhaps uh, not see, um, but I want to point it out to you and the story behind it. It's called the Compassionate Christ Statue. Um, and it's based on a statue uh, originally in, uh, it's still in uh, Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, uh, above the altar. Uh, but John Turner was visiting Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, and they have a replica of this Compassionate Christ statue. And he got the idea, he loved it so much, he got the idea of we need one for the city of Birmingham because uh, this is uh, not the uh, crucified Christ, it's not the, the resurrected Christ, those things are important. This is a Christ that has a, he's, he's about 10 feet up, 15 feet up in the air, looking down on the sidewalk at the people passing by in this corporate environment or uh, whatever, you know, whoever you are walking by on the street and he's got his knee bent and approaching you with his arms outstretched. This is the Christ that's uh, compassionate with where you are and uh, what the troubles of your, your life are, what your places of, of need are, um, um, coming out to you and at the same time hopefully an invitation to the people of city, uh, the city of Birmingham uh, to come in uh, and to hear that gospel uh, to be preached. Another uh, rector and dean that I want to point out is uh, Brinkley Morton um, in the 1970s until 1982 after John Turner he uh, was the first dean of the advent because it wasn't until 19 uh, the 1980s that we became a cathedral before that we were simply the church of the advent a parish church uh, but the, the, the Advent has always kind of uh, almost been a de facto cathedral for the Diocese of Alabama, for a long time at least. Um, right above us um, was for a long time, even before we were the cathedral, the bishop's office. So when John Carpenter was the rector for only a couple years and then became a bishop of the Diocese of Alabama, that was his office. That, that stairway right there... <laughs> He's quite a large man, too, and it's a narrow, steep staircase. Uh, that would have been what he took to, to, to go up to work. Um, but it was, kind of, it was officially codified. We became the cathedral under uh, Brinkley Morton. Yeah, and so that's important for the Advent. That's why we call ourselves the Cathedral Church of the Advent, not merely a cathedral which means that we're still an active church with a, par a parish, meaning a body of people who are a membership. Often cathedrals are kind of just this place of unity and there's not really a, an active, lively congregation. Like uh, in Washington, D.C., the National Cathedral, there's hardly really an active uh, body of people uh, who are involved there. It's really uh, supported by... Um, you know, people who are, are surrounding around the idea of what it means to, to, to be this place that's a cathedral, but that's different for the Advent. First and foremost, we're a church, we're a parish, but uh, now we're this, basically what cathedral means, uh, cathedral means is we have the chair of the bishop. 
So if you go in the church and you look up near the communion table, there's one of two big chairs is the cathedra. It's Latin for meaning chair. That's the, the seat of the bishop. Um, so beyond that, it, it basically uh, is, has symbolic meaning, but um, that's what it is. That's the bishop's chair, the bishop of Alabama, the diocese of Alabama. And it just so happens that Carpenter House is next door where the diocesan offices are. That's not always the case. For example, the, the cathedral of the Diocese of Virginia is an outdoor chapel at their camp. But the diocesan offices are not there, they're elsewhere. Uh, usually it just means a place of unity. Um, and uh, it, it means different things for different dioceses based on how that plays out in practice. But I want to say for the Advent, the Advent's the Advent. And that's another thing. If you hear people say the cathedral, Usually that, for most of us, that means they're not actively involved with the life or understand the church. Because anybody who's kind of usually actively involved with the church says what? The Advent. And not Advent, but like the club <laughs> or the club. The, the Advent, um, uh, which uh, kind of, I guess it could be kind of sort of pretentious, but it means something. Uh, uh, it, it, it means something. Um, first of all, that um, we're a parish church. But anyway, with becoming a cathedral, um, I just point this out, this coat of arms, which was new, becoming a cathedral. Um, but um, um, I don't speak Latin. Someone does. Eveniat regnum tum. Um, your kingdom come. Advent means uh, a, a coming, uh, an expectation, the season of Advent. Um, and so I think that's cool that they incorporate that, that onto our coat of arms and taking symbolism from uh, the uh, season of Advent. But anyway, um, there you go. No, that's just this unique thing that we did, and you could read about it in the chapter room. There's this whole like display about that, and in the Bartleben passageway is this, the original coat of arms. Those are the kinds of pieces of trivia that I don't want to get too hung up on, but just to point out that under Larry Gibson, uh, Larry Gibson, under Brinkley Morton, that was a big change that happened. But then the next uh, uh, dean was this guy named Larry Gibson, who was here for quite a while during the 1980s. And one thing that in reading about the history of the Advent, and I wasn't here, you know, I wasn't here, so I can't speak on this with full authority, but in terms of what I hear uh, and what I read about is a, is a shift in a sort of evangelical nature of the church. Um, and I mean, you were around. Could you say that that's true? Yeah. Whereas before, uh, it, you know, very much in keeping with sort of mainline Protestantism, um, uh, which, you know, means all kinds of different things that I want to get down that rabbit hole, but under Larry Gibson was an increasing change in um, a, a message about sort of taking seriously the, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Um, yeah, and it, Larry <laughs> preached, he'd stand up there and he would say that the little prayer before was, Dear Lord, please set my heart on fire with love for thee. And so that kind of got to be a tagline around here. Uh -huh. Set my heart on fire. So that's kind of that evangelical. Yeah. Um, and so 
there you have it with Larry, um, and then following Larry, uh, and then after he left the Advent, he went to St. Martin's Church in uh, Houston, Texas, which is the largest church in the Episcopal Church, uh, and grew significantly under him, which tells you what kind of guy he was. And the church, the Advent, grew under, under Larry as well, uh, but all things are bigger in Texas, so uh, St. Martin's is massive. Uh, after uh, Larry left, Paul Zoll came. Some of you might have heard of him. Not only was did Larry bring sort of an evangelical um, sort of uh, um, approach and message to the preaching and teaching and life of the Advent, but Paul Zoll further refined that to be a very um, Protestant reformational understanding of the gospel. Um, and uh, with Paul, not only did the, the membership increase because people need to hear that message about Jesus Christ. If you've been, been coming the last six, seven weeks, that's the message that we've been trying to get across, hopefully, the message that, that you need and want to hear. Um, uh, but, uh, and uh, so there's that, but also uh, some other things that are still important to this day, uh, emphasis on small groups, um, you know, as we end this newcomers and inquirers class, if you're a relative newcomer to the church, we still have those small groups that really had their sort of takeoff under Paul, and I think they're they're massively important for our life, especially as being a kind of big place. It's a, the, being in a small group isn't the only way, but a very good way to have a a, a, a small network of people with whom you are in a relationship um, uh, to to share that gospel message with them and to hear that gospel message from them as well. We need each other. So that was Paul, and he was here mostly during the 1990s, left in the early 2000s. Uh, and then for 10 years, uh, Frank Limehouse was the dean, and Frank uh, continued that trajectory that Paul had of that uh, reformational preaching of the gospel so much so that he had in the pulpit, you've probably never seen this before, but we do as preachers, if you go up in the pulpit, this plaque he had placed in from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel, exclamation point. <laughs> uh, so if, if it weren't any clearer, this guy put a brass plaque in the pulpit so that any preacher, especially Lenten preachers, uh, are reminded that's what you're here for, buddy. <laughs> not not to give good advice, but to give uh, good news. Um, and uh, so uh, Frank, most recent dean until now, our current dean, Andrew Pearson, who uh, uh, recruited me. So I think that this is true, that he continues in that trajectory of Larry Gibson, Paul Zoll, uh, Frank Limehouse of gospel-centered ministry. And getting at the vision again, the thing that Andrew refined for us in terms of a vision for the church is basically in him thinking back on the history of the Advent and what the Advent does. Rather than creating a vision, he basically just sort of spelled out what the Advent's doing and trying to do to, to codify it and simplify it. And there are these four hearts. Maybe you've heard it. Number one, we have a heart for the gospel. We have a heart for those who have not heard the gospel. Now think about the compassionate Christ and also the compassionate Christ, a heart for those who've been burned by the church. We get a lot of people who come around from other traditions who have uh, in earlier iterations of their life uh, been uh, alienated uh, by their church experience. 
uh, or maybe lack of church experience because of what they've seen and heard. And that is primarily because it's these are often places that um, lack a message altogether or the message is one that is, uh, is really, at the end of the day, primarily burdensome more than it is freeing. And the gospel is to set the captives free, not to, to weigh us further down. Uh, of course, we need to hear the law, but not end there. Also, hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So a heart for the gospel, a heart for those who have not heard the gospel, a heart for those who have been burned by the church, and a heart for the city of Birmingham. Kind of coming full circle to where I started, that, that we are deeply um, enmeshed with the founding of Birmingham, uh, some of the big uh, influential people in the founding with Elitson Land Company were also members of the church. And you see that carrying on to this day. But even with uh, our, our um, sort of everyday parishioner, a lot of people are really uh, influential in their, their daily life and work. And that's really how the Advent's been uh, important in terms of reaching out, is it's not just our outreach ministry, but so many of you um, are Christians in your workplace, in your hobby place, in your family, and that's massively, massively important. Um, it's not just the official programming of the church, but how Christians are affected um, and take that into their daily life. And so one thing I want to point out as we end in terms of thinking about having a heart for Birmingham and how Andrew was basically just spelling out what's already been happening, I like to point to this stained glass that is above the communion table in our side chapel. Also, right off to Bartolaban Passageway, that small Meyer Chapel. Do you see what this is? This is uh, the resurrected Christ in the midst of the city of Birmingham. Do you see what this is like uh, industry? Like you could imagine that this is probably an iron foundry, a lot like Sloss Furnaces. Maybe it is Sloss. And this is a hotel because the guy who paid for Meyer Chapel was a hotelier. So that was probably one of his hotels. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, imagine that it's the Tutwiler, the new Redmond. You know, what does that mean in 2016 uh, that um, uh, just as you see the resurrected Christ there in the midst of the city, so is Birmingham, right? I mean, so is the Advent right here in, in the, the center of town. And that means something. It means something that so many of you drive from Hoover and Vestavia and Trustville and past so many other churches to come here. You know, why do you do that? You all have your variety of reasons, but it could be a lot more convenient to go to a church that's probably a couple blocks away from your hometown. But there's something about what the Advent represents in terms of its gospel ministry and also its place. And I know this is going to happen in just a minute. The bells are going to toll at uh, 10.50, calling us to worship. And this is another thing that, uh, that I think is symbolic of our place in Birmingham, um, uh, of, of trying to preach the gospel message by any means possible. And one is our bell tower. If you're here during the week, some of you work downtown, you might hear the bells ringing at around 8 a.m., around noon, and around 5 p.m. Because that's when people come to work, that's when they go out to lunch, and that's when they leave work. And we intentionally play hymns that a lot of people recognize so they'll get stuck in your head. <laughs> and that's just one of these small ways that we, we uh, are trying to send that message out and to call out to the people, come in, like the compassionate Christ. 
there are so many other ways that we can do that, that are untapped, that I haven't even thought of, that the leadership hasn't thought of. Uh, uh, that gets me excited, and I um, I hope as you become new members that um, you 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 bring um, some passion and excitement and ideas around how we can reach the city of Birmingham for the gospel, and not just those who've heard it, but those who haven't heard it, and those who maybe have had a terrible experience with the church, because there are so many of them, uh, even here in the South, where we take uh, church going for granted. Um, so thank you so much. Uh, um, if you are being confirmed, reaffirmed, or received into the church, we hope to see you for that rehearsal next Saturday at 930. Um, if you just came midway through this class and want to hear more, know that we'll be doing another one in the fall. So stay tuned for that. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.